Well, good morning. I'd like to thank our worship team for leading us in that, uh, in that act of worship this morning, and thank Seth for bringing you up to date on some pretty important announcements. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. No, I didn't misspeak. I know the video said Mark 9. We're actually covering uh, the end of Mark 8 and going into, to verse, into, into chapter 9. If you don't know me, we're not doing two chapters. Uh, we're still only doing three verses, all right? But we're going to do the last two of Mark 8 and then go to, and go to Mark 9. If you ha- don't have a Bible, there's a black one. The seat back's in front of you. You get to page 895. Uh, then you're going to be with us there at the end of Mark 8 and the beginning of Mark 9. I'm so thankful that you're here. If you're a guest, I really want to make mention of you. I know uh, how awkward and difficult and nerve-wracking and it can be to try someplace new for the first time. And so we want to make sure that we welcome you and just thank you for taking that step of, of uncomfortable faith uh, with us. And uh, if you have not, if you've, if you've been here, this is your first time, you've been here a couple times and have not yet received a gift from us for coming, please stop by uh, the welcome desk on your way out and there'll be somebody there to give you a gift because just as a token of our appreciation for trying something new. Uh, But other than that, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we can get launched out in this message. So, Father, we are grateful uh, for each person who's here. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have now to just open your word, to to listen to the words, the very words of your son, uh, God, and just unpack them and and see how uh, heavy of a punch they packed back then and how they're just as relevant and powerful and true today. And so we pray that as we look at these things, um, God, that your voice would be loudest, that your spirit would move unhindered in this place, that you would move uh, freely and accomplish everything that you desire to accomplish this morning, and that you get the glory from all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So my very first job, I started working at age 13 at Clover Meadows Golf Course in Clover, Indiana. And I actually worked there for about 12 years. So it was, uh, before I started here, uh, it was the longest I've ever worked anywhere. I've now worked here almost 14 years. So you guys win or lose, depending on your perspective, right? But one of the things I loved about that job was just how unpredictable it was. Like things could just, things would just pop up out of nowhere. And, and uh, there was one day, I think, it was, I think I was 14 years old, and I was running the pro shop, because that's how we do it in Cloverdale, it was child labor, right? And a group of men had finished their round and it was kind of their weekly league round and they were hanging out in the clubhouse and as happens sometimes when a bunch of guys are together, trash talk began. And there were two guys especially going at each other, and everybody out there had a nickname. I still don't know anybody's real name, but their nicknames were Colonel and Tuck, and they were just going back and forth. And I, don't, I still don't know how this happened, but all of a sudden, they were going back out for another round one-on-one, and everybody was placing the wagers on who would win. And somehow, I got dragged into this, right? Now, I was 14. I wasn't betting any money, right? Uh, but me and my coworker had a wager on who would win, and I think it was we had to carry each other's bag the next round or 50 push-ups or something like that. And so I take the phone, I go out to the 10th tee to cheer Tuck on because he's who I'm riding with, right? If Tuck wins, I win. If Colonel wins, I loses. And, and I need him to do well. And Colonel steps up, and he hits his first tee shot right down the middle of the fairway. Perfect shot, and I think, that's all right. And then Tuck steps up and he pulls his drive left. It takes two hops and bounces right into the pond in the 10th hole. And Colonel, of course, loved trash talk. And so this got him going even louder. He was yelling. Everybody was cheering for him uh, because men are behemoths, right? There's like 40 people there watching. 20 were rooting for one and 20 were rooting for another. And it got really loud. And I was rightly concerned. And I remember to this day, Tuck walked by me as he was getting the cart. And he said, remember, it's not how you start, but it's how you finish that matters. So they went out and I went back to my job. And about 90 minutes later, I don't know what happened, but 90 minutes later, they returned to the clubhouse and Tuck and I were winners, right? 
And I don't know why that line has always stuck with me because I don't, I don't even think I agree with it, right? Especially in golf. It's not how you start, but how you finish that matters. There's, there's lots of golf tournaments, none that I won the first hole, but several that I lost in the first hole. Um, you can absolutely blow it at the start. But I thought about that moment for whatever reason when I was looking at this week's passage. Just him looking me in the eyes and saying, it's not how you start, but how you finish that matters. Because Jesus, in talking with his disciples in a crowd that he's assembled here at the end of Mark 8, is offering, he's going to offer to us his philosophy and his worldview and his kind of mindset for life. And he knows that what he promises is so much worse than what our enemy and our world and our flesh try to promise us. But especially in today's passage, what he's trying to get us to do is to take the long view. To look past how it looks at the start, to look past the beginning, and to think about where the road that you choose is taking you. And we spent the last couple weeks uh, looking at the promise of God compared to the promise of Satan, where Satan promises that you will get success, and Satan promises you're going to get glory, and Satan promises you're going to get whatever you want without even working for it, and God promises that you will get suffering. And if you compare those two, it's not even close which one looks better at the start, is it? But today, Jesus is going to invite his hearers to take a closer look, to see that what Satan promises, not only can he not deliver, right, but so that when he promises glory, what you actually get is eternal suffering, but also that when we follow Jesus, he transforms our temporary suffering into eternal glory that lasts forever. He's basically saying it's not how you start, but how it ends that matters, If you're a follower of Jesus and you're trying to live a life of cost avoidance and no pain, if if ease or comfort is your God, if you're considering following Jesus but you're struggling to let go of a vision for your life that's appealing to you, more appealing to you than giving your life to Jesus, or if if your faith in Christ, could you honestly say this morning, hasn't really cost you much of anything, or if there's something in your life that matters to you more than Jesus, that it means more to you than his kingdom and his ways. And I'm really glad you're here because Jesus himself is going to challenge all of those very notions. And he's going to call us to something better. He's going to tell us it's not how we start, but how we finish that matters. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read to us today's passage. He's going to be reading Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through Mark 9, verse 1. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of the word of the Lord? Good morning. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. All right. Thank you, Chris. You guys have a seat. Now keep your Bibles open there to the end of Mark 8 and the start of, of Mark 9. And if you haven't been here or you've slept a couple of times in the last few weeks, I think it's really important that we recap what brought us to this, these exact passages. And if you look at uh, Mark 8 in verse 27, we're told that Jesus travels with his disciples uh, to a region, a city known as uh, Caesarea Philippi. It's a big city with several villages around it. Uh, and this was a city of immense importance, right? It had, it had uh, tremendous political power. It was a testament kind of to earthly kings. There are multiple different palaces there. There's even a temple dedicated to the glory of the Roman Empire. And, and on his way there, he asked the disciples, who do others say that I am? And they give a list of guesses that people make. And then he makes it really personal. He says, but you, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter speaks up for the group and he says, you are the Messiah, right? You're the chosen, sent, promised one of God. So far, so good. But in verse 31, Mark tells us that he began, this is the phrase, that he began to teach them. So he's enlightening them to something they hadn't grasped before. And and what he's teaching them is what the role of the Messiah actually was. He says, yes, I am the Messiah, but I will not be an earthly king. I won't be conquering Caesarea Philippi. I won't be conquering Rome. I won't be doing any of that. Instead, here's what he teaches them. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by my own people. I'm going to be killed, and then I'll rise again. This was a shock to the disciples. And so Peter actually takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, Mark tells him, begins to correct him, which is just not smart, not even for Peter, Right? And what Jesus does is he turns and addressing uh, Peter, he turns to where he's looking at the rest of the disciples and he says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're, you're not thinking with God's mind. You're not worried about God's concerns, but human concerns only. And this whole kind of exchange, exchange, this whole confrontation was all due to the disciples believing that Jesus as the Messiah would indeed set up an earthly kingdom, that he would indeed set up the dominant kind of empire of the world and they would get to be in his inner circle. And so the rest of their lives were going to be marked by prosperity and success and power. And Jesus has just told them the exact opposite is true. And they're still reeling from this. And in verse 34, which is where Brandon started uh, preaching last week, he said, Mark tells us that he calls the crowd over. So there's a crowd nearby, and he's like, this isn't just for disciples. Everybody needs to know this. He's going to set the record straight for everybody. And, and here's what he says. If any of you, anyone of you at all, wants to follow after me, you all want to be in my inner circle, then here is the formula. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me into my sufferings. That's the path. In fact, he says, anybody who tries to preserve their life and preserve their dreams and preserve their definition of success, they're going to lose everything. But whoever is willing to give up their life and give up their dreams and give up their their desires and their definition of success, give all that up for me, will find life and life forever. And then he asks some really good questions. He says, what does it benefit anyone to gain the whole world? Everything that you see behind me in Caesarea Philippi, if you got all of that and still lost your life and soul, what would that matter? And then that leads us to this really weighty declaration in verse 38 that Chris read for us. Look at verse 38. It leads him right into this statement. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That is heavy. That that should strike at least some concern and fear in any of us. And so make no mistake about it, this is a warning to disciples. Jesus says plainly, if anybody's ashamed of me, anybody's ashamed of my words, I'll be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of my Father. Now remember, to this point, you couldn't ever make the argument that these guys have been ashamed of Jesus, right? They, they left everything. They left their homes. They left their families. They left their careers to follow him. But they, they're coming off this, this confrontation where they made a major error, where Jesus tells them that following him won't lead to an earthly life of power and wealth and glory, and they reject it. They say no, to the point where they're now correcting him. And so he's saying to them, you guys don't like this? You don't like the formula laid out for you? You don't, you don't want this? You're ashamed of this? Well, if that's how you decide to play it, I'll be ashamed of you when it's time for my kingdom to come in full. And now, we need to understand what he's leveling here because these words are heavy. We hear the word ashamed and what we think of is embarrassment. 
Okay, but this word that we translate into English, ashamed, this word in the Greek is used nine times in the New Testament. If you go look up each, each of those nine times, it's always related to suffering. That in context, this word is always about your willingness or lack thereof to suffer or endure costs. Okay, the most, the, probably the most obvious example of this is in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And this is what Paul writes to his protege Timothy. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. So how can he not be ashamed, he tells us. Instead this, share in sufferings. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. And so this got me thinking, what would make us ashamed of Jesus to that, to that degree, that definition? What would keep me from enduring suffering? What would keep me from taking up my cross? What would keep me from experiencing a cost, being willing to do those things for Jesus? And really, it just comes down to this. There's something else that I value more. That's it. If there's something that I value more than him, then I won't give that up for his sake. If there's something I value more than him, then I won't endure that cost and suffering. And the Bible would call that being ashamed of Jesus. And if this is his formula to be his disciple, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow wherever he leaves, if we won't do that, it's for one reason. It's because there's something else we want more than him. There's something else we want more than being his apprentice and his follower and his disciple. And that begs a really powerful question. What is that for you? What is it that you value more than Jesus? What is it that you value more than his kingdom? What is it that you value more than following him? What's that thing that you love so much that's keeping you from being obedient to Christ? Is it your steadfast commitment to avoiding all forms of cost? Is it worshiping at the altar of comfort? Is it elevating your personal preferences over his mission? Is it a pursuit of some sort of earthly success or wealth? Is it an idol such as popularity or entertainment or sports? Do you place way too high a value on what other people think of you? Are you one of those that avoid things that you know are good because they're too hard and what you want more than good is ease? Is it cherished sin that you just simply won't give up? What is tempting you this morning to be ashamed of Jesus? What is keeping you from enduring costs and willingly signing up for suffering with him? We need to heed the warning here. Jesus is not nullifying his own sacrifice or changing his gospel here. Okay, we need to understand that salvation, right, forgiveness of sins and get to eternal life, this is by grace alone and through faith alone. Jesus is not saying here, obey me and you can earn your way into my kingdom. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, following me, Right, trusting, surrendering, giving your life to me will cost you something. Right, there, there is a surrender. There is a suffering. There is a giving up of your life. And if you decide at the outset that I'm not worth it, and you cling to your idols and your dreams and your preferences, then when you see everything that you could have had with me, on that day it will be too late. Because I will return the shame. Because that's the other powerful thing he's doing here. Right, last week, the questions that Brandon covered for us were about the tragic cost of missing out on Jesus. Right? What does it benefit you if you gain the whole world and spend eternity in hell? Like what, how is that a bonus for you? How is that a good trade? But now Jesus is flipping. He's not focusing on the cost of missing out on him. He's pointing us to the immense gain that is to come. He's pointing out there is a greater kingdom coming. Do not forget where they are. 
He's standing near Caesarea Philippi, the city named after Augustus Caesar and King Herod Philip. There are palaces there. There's a temple to the glory of Rome. It is prosperous. It's a city that represented every single thing disciples hoped for. And Jesus is pointing behind him and saying, if all this that you see, if that's what you want, then you don't want me and you don't want my kingdom. And if you're ashamed of that and you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you in the future. And listen to the future he talks about. Verse 38. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That language, when. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Hasn't Jesus already come? I mean, what, isn't he the sent Messiah? He's, he's right there in front of them, talking to them right then. He, he's just confirmed, yes, I am the Messiah. I'm the promised sent one of God. So why does he speak as if his coming is in the future? Because it is. You see, this coming, the one that we are studying as we go through the book of Mark, this coming was all about Jesus condescending and going lower and going lower. Here's how Philippians 2 puts it. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, by taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Every step was lower, 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 lower. And the reason was that Jesus was sent by God the Father to reconcile sinners back to God. And, he, and to do that, he had to endure a physical death. Colossians 1 says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, right, as, by in your, as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by what? By his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. I want you to think of that as you think of the formula he just described for his disciples, that you will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow where my sufferings lead. And what Colossians 1 says that we, all of us who are sinners, were hostile towards God. And in, in light of that, Jesus physically died to pay our price and to bring us back to God, to present us holy and blameless to him. The only way for Jesus to do that was to deny himself, literally take up his cross, and follow the path the Father set out for him. It's the same exact formula. And so what Jesus is on here in Mark 8 and Mark 9, he's on a, not a mission of promotion, but of condescension. He, from heaven to assuming human form, to coming as a baby, to growing up and being rejected, to enduring the cross and experiencing death, it was lower, 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 lower. And what we see here is the disciples thought Jesus was a ticket to the good life that he was a rocket ship on its way up that they needed to hitch their wagons to. And when it came to earthly lives, they could not have got it more wrong. He wasn't going up, he was going down. But it's not how you start, but how it finishes that matters. Matthew 13, Jesus presented a parable to his disciples and he says, the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom he's establishing is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, this really tiny seed, it's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the, of the sky come and nest in his branches. He's taught these guys about his kingdom. It doesn't look like much now. Our little ragtag group right here compared to what you see in the light of Caesarea Philippi, it doesn't even seem comparable. But the seed is in the ground. And what I've began will grow and grow and grow and grow beyond your wildest dreams. 
See, the Bible is clear. Jesus will return again. And this time it will not be a mission of humility. This time he will be a conquering king, vanquishing evil forever, having already defeated its power on the cross. And this time he's going to bring his kingdom in full and nothing, and I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Revelation 21, God, uh, John, uh, God showed John a vision of what this will look like and he recorded it for us. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And listen to what Jesus says. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. You see that? I'm making everything new. There is nothing that will not be changed and will not be touched and will not be impacted by the kingdom of God. And here, back in Mark 8, he tells them some foreshadowing is coming soon. He continues in Mark 9, verse 1. It says, then he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. He's like, guys, you might be reeling at this revelation that I did not come as an earthly king. I might have a completely opposite plan than what you thought, but really soon, really soon, if you just hang with me, you're going to see this kingdom come in power. And it's going to set in motion a chain of events that will change everything. And the contrast that he's making is this. The disciples and everybody in that day would have been in awe of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is one of the more impressive empires throughout Earth's history, right? It was the dominant kingdom of that day. Everyone would have been in awe of it. And their desire was to trade places with Rome, to become that. But Jesus is saying here, while staying in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi and its temple to the glory of Rome, all this that you see, this is nothing. This is pathetic. Something much, much, much greater is coming. And by the way, it's now been 1,700 years since anybody cared about the Roman Empire. And the kingdom of God is still building and will last forever. And Jesus points all this out. He's setting up all these contrasts to bring his disciples and the hearers to one question. Which kingdom will you serve? And he's not talking about Rome there. There are two kingdoms that his disciples and his listeners are going to have to decide between. There are two kingdoms that you and I have to decide between. And the first is our kingdom. Our our kingdom contains our vision for our lives. This kingdom has our idols. We are the center of this kingdom. This kingdom includes our hopes and our dreams and our desires and our plans. And what is at stake in this kingdom is my glory. The second kingdom is the kingdom of God. In this kingdom, God sets the vision for my life. In this kingdom, I am to deny myself and take up my cross. In this kingdom, Jesus Christ is the sinner, and what is at stake is Jesus' name and his renown and his glory. And Jesus is standing in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi and saying, I know you want all this, I get it, but this is not my kingdom. This is not what I'm offering you. Come with me, come follow my kingdom, and there will be cost, and there will be suffering, and there will be loss, yes, but man, you will get glory in the end. You're going to get an eternal, lasting, forever reward because of my cross. You follow me down the lower, narrow path, and you're going to be one of the few that finds life. And he leads them in that tension, that choice to make. The next thing Mark tells us about is six days from now. So this was kind of his, his mic drop. He's just going to leave them there. And we're going to watch as a church as we go through the book of Mark over the coming chapters, the disciples wrestle with that decision. They don't desert Jesus. They stay with him. They keep following. But boy, do they struggle. 
And they struggle specifically with this concept. This concept of not seeking your own glory or greatness is one that they're going to keep getting wrong again and again and again as they're pursuing Christ. And each time, he is there to set them straight. Next week, we get to read about the kingdom of God coming in power. This amazing passage of Christ's transfiguration. But this week, Mark leaves us in the same tension. With the same question. Which kingdom will you serve? Are you going to remain on the throne in your life? Are you going to serve the kingdom of you? Or will you give that throne to Jesus and rightly follow him? The clear and obvious and right choice is to follow Jesus. To believe in him, to ask him to forgive you by his grace, and then surrender your life and your plans and your futures and your everything to him. And by the way, as you do, you're going to mirror the disciples. You'll get some things right and struggle with others. And each time, Jesus will be there to set you back on the right path. But for those of you this morning who have legitimately made that decision, right? And you've, you've decided you're going to live for Jesus and follow his kingdom and follow his ways. Here's some helpful reminders to help ensure that our hearts don't wander from that plan because boy, it's going to want to. And the first is this. Seek to form deep convictions. This, this passage, everything from verse 34 on, is, is this challenge by Jesus, it's all about conviction. Will you serve Jesus even in the face of suffering? Will you follow Jesus when you lose everything that you wanted? Will you obey Jesus when his plans are the opposite of your plans? Will you be unashamed of Jesus even when others shame you for following him? And what is needed in all of that is pure conviction. What is needed in this world of 24-hour access to each other, right? 24-hour access to the internet. No end of peer pressure. No downtime of that. The peak time in all of history for groupthink and mob mentality. What is needed are followers of Jesus who form deep convictions. Because conviction is beyond preference. It's even beyond belief. Conviction is the belief that you're willing to hold to no matter what may come. Conviction stands in the face of peer pressure. Conviction stands in the face of family pressure. Conviction stands in the face of legal threats and lawsuits and jail and persecution and death. None of them impact conviction. And the question is, is there anything that you believe to that degree? Because Jesus is worthy of that level of conviction. Almost all the most popular beliefs held by the masses, they're dropped. The first sign of pressure or cost or ridicule. But Jesus Christ, right, being my hope for salvation, him being the only way to God in heaven, his gospel being the only good news, Jesus being the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him, these are things that need to be so grounded in me that nothing can penetrate those beliefs. Him being good and for me and and his word being my authority, these need to be convictions that are so grounded nothing can penetrate them. Convictions hold true when we're hurting. They hold true when we're suffering. Convictions hold true when we're confused and under attack. Convictions hold true when we're tempted and depressed and more. I don't ever want to be ashamed of my king. And so what I need to do is to ask him to form these convictions deep within me and within those that I love. Second, invest in the eternal kingdom. Jesus, in this passage, stands in front of Caesarea Philippi and all it represented, and he talked about a kingdom that would come in glory and power and would last forever. It wasn't the only time he mentioned eternal things. Here's how he puts it in Matthew 6. 
He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I said, we got six people in the Parks household. Four of them are kids, right? And there are times when Corinne or I will work really hard to clean something, let's be honest. There are times when Corinne works really hard to clean something, right? And recently, just, just last week, she steam mopped all of our floors. I walked in the house, and they looked amazing. Like, like so good, like almost brand new again. And it lasted all of five minutes. Because then everybody got home. And it wasn't long before it looked just like it did right before she did it. And it was a good reminder that everything that we build, everything that we put our hands to, everything that we pour our hearts in, everything that we put our money towards, everything that we sweat and train for, all of it is temporary. None of it lasts. It can be destroyed or taken away from you today. Everything except for those things that you've invested into the kingdom of God. Because they last forever. And so the question is, where are you storing up? Where are you investing do you have rhythms and practices of just being alone with your Savior? You remember the story of, of Mary and Martha, and uh, they're, at the, the, they're at the house, Jesus is there, and Martha's all worried because Mary's not helping or anything, and, and Jesus says this, Mary has chosen what is right, and it will never be taken from her. Why? Because she's sowed in the eternal kingdom. Do you have a regular practice of, of, of process of tithing or giving back to God? Does your family support a missionary or a missions organization? Are you investing into the spiritual well-being of others? Are you praying for non-believers? Are you sharing the hope of the gospel of Jesus? Are you discipling anybody who isn't as far along in your faith as you are? Have you joined a group? Are you leading a group? What, what investments are you currently making into eternity? What investments are you making into the kingdom of God? Because I can already tell you, I've already spent a lot of time and money and effort on things that I've ultimately regretted or that resulted in nothing lasting. But I have never in my life given God a single dollar, a single minute, a single cost, or any amount of effort that I ever regretted. Not one time. Because when I'm wise enough to invest in the eternal kingdom, I am joining God Almighty in what he's up to and the returns are lasting and forever. How's that for a return on investment? I would hate to spend this life building my own little pathetic accessory of Philippi and then head to an eternity with nothing invested into my forever. So invest into the eternal kingdom. And lastly, just give Jesus the keys. I told you a couple weeks ago about the team in Berlin who didn't know where they were going, and they just followed me wherever, including the unnecessary detour to a trash can. But you know what? That's actually a picture of how I long to lead my life, where I'm just following after Jesus, not knowing where I'm headed, not knowing how long it will take, not knowing how long he'll keep me at each stop, but fully, in content, fully content and at peace that he will get me where I need to be, because that's what we're promised in his word. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you know how your story will end. If you're in Jesus, you've been given every single spiritual blessing under heaven in Christ according to Ephesians 1. If you're in Jesus, you have the assurance of life forever. If you're in Jesus, you don't need to search for purpose. You know where to find it. There's no mystery to you as to where to look for strength. You know it's in him. You're not confused about where to go for answers to the truth. It's in his word. 
Do you understand the world, that the treasure that the world longs for is ours, and it's ours fully and in intimate, personal ways? And your story, no matter how much struggle or suffering or cost or grief or pain that is your current experience, your story will end marvelously. And so hand him the keys and sit back and enjoy the ride. Let go of anxiety, let go of fear, endure in the face of suffering and rejoice in the face of blessings. In the good and in the bad, receive what is given to you from heaven and let gratitude mark you and rest in the sovereign care of your Savior. He has you. He has this, that thing that you're fretting about and worried about and staying up late thinking about. He's already got it. And he will get you to where you need to be. He promises that he who began a good work and you will see it through to completion. And he will take you home, praise his name. See, at the end of the day, there's one kingdom worth serving. There's one king worthy of your allegiance, and it's not you. So whatever it is that you value more than him right now, just be honest to that. Call it out. Identify it this morning, and then let go of it before it's too late. And make it the aim of your life to make much of Jesus and serve his kingdom. I promise you, you will never regret it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you create a church of people here in Terre Haute that you will not be ashamed of when you come in the glory of your Father. A church of people that are willing to endure whatever cost, whatever suffering, whatever, whatever pain may lie down the road of falling after you when we take up our cross and deny ourselves. Because we know it's not how it starts, but how it ends that matters. And so around this room, Lord, I, I pray that you will inspect, that you will speak clear. You, you put your finger on, on things in our lives and things in our heart that we just value more than you, God. We serve it with greater fervency than we serve you. We cherish it and protect it more than we cherish and protect our walk with you. We obey it more than we obey you. Lord, reveal those things clearly to us. And then I pray that we'd have the wisdom to let go of those, to repent of those, to surrender them over you this morning so that we can follow your pattern, that we can deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you into sure suffering and sure eternal glory. Do this for the sake of your kingdom. Do this for the sake of your own glory. Do this for the sake of your own name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we let you go out today, we're going to give you a couple minutes just to spend in prayer with the Lord, wrestling with some things that hopefully he's put on your heart this morning, some things his spirit has convicted you of. And so this is your time to, to pray, to surrender, to believe, to let go of, to whatever he's asking you to do. Uh, this is your time with him. Don't waste it.